0: 14, 23 to 29 is our text. 2 Kings, chapter 14, 23 to 29. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel sin. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, which God, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath heifer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter, for there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. The Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might and how he fought and how he recovered for Israel, Damascus, and Hamath, which belonged to Ju- had belonged to Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, even with the kings of Israel, and Zechariah, his son, became king. In his place. The reading of Holy Scripture, be seated, please, and let's pray together. Our great God in heaven, we call upon your name, O Lord, the one who has given this revelation to us, the one who spoke these words, spoke your word, O God, by the prophets. Uh, and uh, the apostles, and the historians, the inspired historians of uh, Israel. We ask, O oh God, that you would enable us now to understand this history, and that, that we might, we pray, that you would grant the Holy Spirit's ministry in our hearts, both in preaching and in hearing. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In the next two sections of 2 Kings, uh, the section that we've, ju- we've just read in, in chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, we're given short accounts of two long reigns, one in the northern kingdom and one in the southern kingdom. In the north, Jeroboam II reigned in Israel for a period of 41 years, the longest of all the kings of Israel. In the south, Azariah, also known as Uzziah, reigned 52 years in Judah, which, if we're keeping score, is the second longest of all the southern kings. Jeroboam II and Azariah shared something in common other than their long reigns. Their respective kingdoms both enjoyed prosperity and stability during their reigns, which, in the case of Jeroboam II, may shock us, since he was as much of an evildoer as all his predecessors and all of his successors. Why was Jehovah merciful to Jeroboam and to the people of Israel under him. Why did God gift the king with such peace and prosperity given his wickedness? As we'll see, the answer to the conundrum has to do, at least in part, with a promise made to his grandfather here in Second Kings thirteen, five. But there's also something of a mystery at play in our text. In it, we're taught that Jehovah shows mercy and extends overtures of grace even to notorious sinners in order to call them to repentance, faith, and covenant fidelity. We have two things at work here. First, evil that deserves judgment. And second, mystifying mercy and grace. First place then, evil that deserves judgment. The narrator begins his account of Jeroboam the second in the way he customarily does for Israel's kings, the northern kings, telling us how long and how evil his reign was. He reigned 41 years, verse 23. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nabat, which he made Israel sin. Whereas King David was the standard for the kings in the south, in Judah, King Jeroboam the first, the son of Nabat, was the standard of unrighteousness for the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom. Remember that Jeroboam the first... Was the first king of the divided kingdom. Jeroboam was afraid of his kingdom reverting to the house of David, that if the people went up to offer sacrifices in Jerusalem, their heart would return to King Rehoboam, Solomon's son in Judah. So he made two golden calves, putting one in Bethel, in the south of Israel, just 10 miles across the border from Jerusalem. And then one in the north, all the way to the northernmost part of the kingdom in Dan. The narrator writes in 1 Kings 12:30 now this thing became a sin, for people went to worship before the one as far as Dan, that is, as far away as possible in the northern kingdom of Israel from Jerusalem the appointed place of worship, the place where God had said, this is where you shall come and and, uh, worship me. And if that weren't enough, Jeroboam made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi and instituted his own feast day instead of celebrating one of the divinely ordained feast days. Jeroboam's great sin was violating the regulative principle of worship. That is, the principle given to us in Scripture that we are to worship God only in the way that he is directed to worship, uh, for us to worship him in uh, his word. He did so by perpetuating Baal worship, by his innovation in worship and by introducing syncretistic worship. That is, the worship of God mixed with false practices of worship. With the exception of Ahab and his two sons after him who did more evil by perpetuating Baal worship in Israel, almost all of Israel's kings were said to do evil by following the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel sin, including his namesake, Jeroboam second. Now one way to see just how bad things were in the time of Jeroboam II is to read the prophets that served the Lord. During his reign, for example, as a sign of Israel's rampant idolatry and spiritual adultery, Jehovah commanded Hosea to marry a prostitute, Hosea 1, verses 2 and 3, and spoke these words of chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, through the prophet Hosea, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of Israel because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. The prophet Amos offered an equally sad commentary on Israel in chapter 2. And verse 6 of his prophecy, uh, verses 6 through 8, For the Lord says, For uh, three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. These who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless also turn aside to the way of the humble. And a man and his father... Resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. In response to all of this immorality and injustice, which Jeroboam did nothing to curtail, Amos invited the Israelites to attend their own funeral. There would be wailing in the streets and lamentations in the rural vineyards, Amos 5 16 to 17 says, as God came to Israel in judgment. Now, given what we've read of Jeroboam II, and given these grim prophecies, it's surprising to read about Jeroboam II's accomplishments. In verse 25 of our text, he restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord spoken of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath-hepher. Jonah is better known as the prodigal prophet, who whom Jonah. Uh, rather, Jehovah subdued by appointing a great fish to swallow him, compelling him to obey uh, the command to go to Nineveh and preach repentance, which he had run away from before. You remember, and had not obeyed the word of the Lord. But according to our text, Jonah also prophed, uh, prophesied prosperity for Jeroboam the second, and through that prophecy, God restored the fortunes of the kingdom and really put Israel back on the map, politically. In fact, Jeroboam II regained so much territory that the borders of Israel stretched almost as far as they had during the golden age of Solomon's reign, 1 Kings 8, verse 65. This king must have been a man of military prowess and political skill. The summer of his of his reign in uh, verse 28 acknowledges this. Now the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did in his might, how he fought and how he recovered for Israel, Damascus and Hamath, which had belonged to Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Israel, under Jeroboam II, was in ascendancy. What explains this unexpected turn of events? Given the description of Jeroboam's sin and the prophecies that Hosea and Amos made, we would ex- have expected judgment for this king, not the dramatic expansion of his kingdom, not military and political accomplishments, and not a 41-year reign, the longest of the northern kings. Why was he blessed with such peace and prosperity? Well, that brings us to our second point, mystifying mercy and grace. From a spiritual standpoint, of course, Jeroboam didn't deserve anything that he had accomplished. Not a long reign, not a bigger kingdom, and not a son to rule in his place. None of this was the king's doing. It was all because of God's mercy and grace. Verses 26 and 27, For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter, for there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. The Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now, this wasn't the first time that God had pity on his people. And it wouldn't be the last. Exodus 3, 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. Judges 2, verse 18, the Lord raised up judges for them, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. We've, we've also seen uh, this in 2 Kings. Uh, most recently with Jehoahaz, 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. Then Jehoahaz entreated the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, how the kings of Aaron oppressed them. The Lord gave Israel a deliverer, so that they escaped from under the hand of the Aramaeans and the sons of Israel lived in their tents as formerly. As, we, as I mentioned as we were uh, working through our exposition of this particular text here in 2 Kings 13, uh, that word, deliverer or savior, we could translate this, is, I think... Uh, a reference to his uh, to Jehoahaz's son Joash chapter 13 and verse 25 who de- who uh, defeated Ben-Hadad the king of Aram three times recovered the city of Israel and also to Jeroboam the second who's called uh, the savior uh, the deliverer or the one by whom God saved Israel. God knew, our text tells us, that no one else would save Israel. And as we've seen through the prophets Amos and Hosea, he had announced that judgment was coming. But God never said that he would destroy the kingdom completely. He'd also promised King Jehu that four more generations of his son the sons would rule over Israel. Chapter ten, verse thirty, and that comes in Zechariah that we see here in verse twenty nine of our text. He's the fourth of Jehu's sons who uh, ruled according to the promise so what God did was in keeping with his word it wasn't inconsistent at all with his character furthermore God made these overtures of grace to wicked and rebellious Israel to call them to repentance and covenant fidelity as wicked as Jeroboam the first was Ahab excelled him in wickedness. 1 Kings 13, verse 33, remember, says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were, who were before him. Yet, although, in 1 Kings chapter 20, and verse 1, Ahab and his army face devastating defeat that they deserve, Jehovah... Delivers them. Ben-Hadad, the king of Arab uh, Aram, and his coalition of thirty-two kings had besieged uh, Samaria. But chapter twenty, verse thirteen, reveals that God sent a prophet to inform uh, to inform them that Jehovah would still deliver them from this massive force of the king of Aram and his and the thirty-two kings with him that were marshaled against them. Israel defeats them according to the word of the Lord. Then God sends another prophet, chapter 20, verse 22, to warn Ahab to prepare for another attack that the king of Aram was planning at the beginning of the following year. And sure enough, Ben-Hadad went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. But even though the sons of Israel are said to be like two little flocks of goats before the vast multitude of the Aramaeans who filled the country, Jehovah sends another prophet to assure Ahab that he would deliver them so that they might know that he is Jehovah, the God of the mountains and the valleys. And of course, Jehovah's word is fulfilled. But the question remains, and the mystery of God's mercy hangs over the text. Why do this for a king who did more to provoke him than all of the kings of Israel? who were before him and the only answer that could be is this is a an overture of divine mercy and grace to call Ahab to call Israel to repentance and covenant Faithfulness. And that's what's going on in our text. That's what's going on in Jeroboam the Second's forty-one year reign that brought peace and prosperity for the northern kingdom. And Amos explicitly prophesies concerning this in chapter five, verses twelve to fourteen, in his prophecy, I know your transgressions. Are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. Listen to what he says. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And thus the Lord God of hosts be with you. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph, mystifying mercy and grace to God's rebellious people in the northern kingdom. Before you say that such overtures of mercy and grace to the wicked don't make any sense and resort to questioning them or even rejecting them, you'd better be ready to recognize that you have experienced the same mysterious mercy and grace in your own life. Sometimes when you least expect it and least deserve it, God blesses you anyway. Certainly this is the narrative of the gospel in which Christ, the Son of God, suffered punishment that we deserve for our sins and now offers to us the free gift of salvation. Sometimes this is also the narrative of unbelievers who have no claim whatsoever on God's mercy or justice at all especially if they're notoriously evil. Nevertheless, God has compassion on them and even puts his hand upon them and blesses them in unexpected ways or even saves them. When no one else can help, God is still able to save when no one else is there to deliver. God rises up as the deliverer of his people. His divine assistance may come from a surprising source. And it may be a mystery to us. It might even come from someone evil like Jeroboam II. But rather than presuming on his mercy as Israel did in the days of Jeroboam II and in the days prior to Jeroboam II and in the days after Jeroboam II, you should respond to this undeserved favor with grateful thanksgiving, devoted love, and steadfast obedience. The Puritan Thomas Case wrote, when God loads you with mercy, you should load him with your praise. And rather than resenting God's mercy towards people who don't seem to deserve a second chance, as uh, you remember Jonah was given, when he rebelled against Jehovah's call, to preach to Nineveh, you should give thanks to the Lord for giving them the grace by which you also have been saved. Let's pray. God of all mercy, God of all love and grace, the God who has loved us from everlasting to everlasting. From everlasting to everlasting, O God, you have been pleased you were pleased to determine that mercy would be shown, grace would be shown especially to your elect people and we would be remiss, O God, if we did not take the opportunity even now to offer up our thanksgiving to you, to offer up our praise, to load that praise and thanksgiving upon you, even as you load your mercy and grace upon us. We recognize, we acknowledge what unworthy people we are. We know what our sins deserve. And yet you, O Lord, while we were yet enemies, reconciled us to yourself through the blood of the cross. Accept our praise. It's meager, O oh Lord. And so often, we fail to show gratitude for all that you have done for us, all that you've done to us, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept it now, O oh Lord, even through the mediation of Christ who makes our praise more glorious then it sounds coming out of our mouths. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.